Healthcare staffing shortages at the Veterans Affairs Department are back on the rise after years of progress. The VA's Inspector General finds more than 2,600 severe staffing shortages for 285 occupations across the Veterans Health Administration nationwide. It's the first uptick in staffing shortages in recent years and an indication that the COVID-19 pandemic continues to take a toll on its workforce. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman is here with more. Jory, just how bad are these staffing shortages at the VA? Well, the shortages are going to be more acute in some places compared to others. But what was really striking from this VA Inspector General report is just that these shortages are systemic across the Veterans Health Administration and that the IG found that out of the 139 VHA facilities it toured and surveyed, that all of them had at least one severe staffing shortage by occupation here. And as you pointed out, Eric, this is the first year in recent years that the VHA has seen an uptick in these staffing shortages. In 2019, 2020, and 2021, VHA was making progress year over year, reducing those shortages. And just goes to show that even during some years of the COVID-19 pandemic, they were continuing to make progress here. But now in fiscal 2022, that progress has reversed and we've seen those shortages get more severe. I imagine certain positions are harder to fill than others. What kinds of positions have had the longest term shortages at VA? Yeah, there are a handful of positions that perennially have been an issue here. The IG identifies VA police, psychiatry, primary care, practical nurses, engineering, psychology, and medical technologists as some of the positions that have been hard to fill for years now. And what's interesting here is that the IG does give credit where credit's due. They point out that VHA has made progress reducing these shortages across facilities since 2017, but that these shortages remain and that there's still uh, a demand for these positions across the VHA. And rural healthcare facilities in general have had a hard time filling vacancies, and I imagine VA is no different. Uh, what are the hardest hit geographic areas that are uh, having to deal with these vacancies? Yeah, out west, we saw two facilities that were the hardest hit by these vacancies, Grand Junction VA Medical Center in Colorado and Palo Alto VA Medical Center in California. They set the record here at 89 different staffing shortages this year, and that is a high bar in general for VHA, not a, a bar anyone wants to meet here, but goes to show that they're running into challenges trying to recruit a bright, a broad swath of positions here. And what are some of the other highlights that uh, came from this report regarding the VA workforce? Yeah, what struck me by all of this is that the v the IG identified that 63% of VHA facilities reported a severe shortage of medical support assistance, and that is a Title 38 occupation, which VHA is able to use its direct hire authority and bypass a, an otherwise lengthy federal hiring process to bring these people on board. And so what that tells a reader of this IG report is it's not just a lengthy time to hiring process that is the barrier here. It's just that in some cases, the agency is just not able to find people who want to take on these jobs, which is uh, certainly a striking situation for the agency to find itself in. And what other professionals are in short supply at VA other than, you know, the obvious ones of doctors and nurses? 
Yeah, so to take a different tact here, the VA is facing a 23% vacancy rate for licensed professional mental health counselors, as well as marriage and family therapists. It's uh, just, you know, another branch of the services that VA offers here. And what's interesting is that we saw from Senate VA Committee Chairman John Tester and Ranking Member Jerry Moran, they issued a letter to the VA and the Office of Personnel Management seeking an update under a 2020 piece of legislation that required VA to work with OPM and create a new federal occupation series for these specialists. That has yet to happen. And so these senators are pressing these agencies for an update on this. They got an update late last year in the fall that there's a task force being put to task on this and they're trying to uh, make get this off the ground. But this is uh, something that still is a, a going concern for both of those agencies. And so the Senate wants an update on where things stand. Another area where VA is making some moves is on the customer experience front. Uh, I know personally I've seen tons of press releases regarding that issue. Uh, what are What is the uh, update or the latest on uh, how they're dealing with their customer experience goals set by the Biden administration? Right. Yeah. VA is one of the agencies the Biden administration has put in the spotlight with its recent customer experience executive order. And one specific line of action here is that the VA is supposed to work with the General Services Administration to make login.gov, which is this government-wide secure login service, uh, the backbone of VA's digital offerings in terms of benefits and services. And we've seen some recent updates on that front. The VA announced that it now has login.gov as its login service for its main website, va.gov, as well as its My Healthy Vet service and VA's health and benefits mobile app. And that's just a taste of what's to come here. And this fits into a broader vision of what GSA would like to see for login.gov. They are looking to reach 100 million users by the end of this year. And when I checked in with GSA Administrator Carnahan in an interview earlier this year, she said that there are about 40 million users of login.gov currently. So that's more than double where things currently stand, give or take. That's Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Jory, thanks so much. Thanks, Eric. You can follow more of Jory's coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. 
And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. 
And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.